Beloved saints, this is our God's word, and it is perfect, and it is always timely. It makes wise the simple, it refreshes the soul, and it gives life to those who receive it in faith. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our rock, like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, and she who has many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. The heavens above, O Lord, they do declare your glory. And the skies, they proclaim your handiwork. Every day they pour out speech, and every night they give knowledge. But this, your word, is perfect. And it does revive the soul. It does make wise the simple. Your precepts, they are right, and they give joy to the heart. And your commandments are pure. They enlighten the eyes. And so your word... What we hold in our hands is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. And so we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in you, in your sight. We pray this, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So how do we reflect on the birth of Jesus? Today, all around the world, that's what people are talking about. And there's a good reason. The birth of Jesus, after all, is one of the most significant events in all of human history. Because in that moment, the eternal God who created all things took on human flesh and he entered into our world. His own creation. And so it's not uncommon then to open up Matthew or or Luke or or the Gospel of John and read about about his birth, his incarnation, and to uh, meditate on one of these passages or perhaps to turn to one of those well-known prophecies in the Old Testament about the Virgin giving birth or Bethlehem being chosen 
as that place for that miraculous event to take uh, to take place. Uh, but there's a danger. The danger is to think that these are the only passages that speak about his birth. As, as, if, as if God spoke about this moment of such enormous significance in really you know, five, six, seven places, his entire word. When in reality, God spoke about the coming and the birth of the Messiah in too many passages to number. And so for the last 15 years, yes, I, I went back and checked, 15 years, uh, I have begun looking at passages in the Old Testament that are anticipations uh, of the coming birth of Jesus, what we call seed passages, that talk about this coming seed or, or the coming birth of one, and, and it all goes back to Genesis 3.15. We read it last night, uh, Genesis 3.15, uh, which is where that first seed passage takes place. It, it comes after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit. It falls in the context of God pronouncing judgment and curses. Uh, The serpent, you'll remember, had come into God's garden. He had spoken lies to Adam and Eve. Uh, He had called them to abandon their trust in God and in his word. Because God told them that that happiness was found in, in trusting him. The serpent came and said, happiness is found in the abundance of food, in, in being served, in being exalted, in never being told no. And they believed the serpent. And so they took and they ate. But what they obtained was not what they saw. Instead of fulfillment, that that the serpent had promised them all they found was guilt and shame and despair they had no peace they had no love they, they, they had no contentment they just started pointing fingers thinking if they could just find someone else to blame someone else to make miserable they themselves might feel better all because they believed the serpent and his lies. And so God's judgment began with the serpent. And he, and he declared to the serpent, you'll remember that, that well-known verse, Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise his head, But he, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, but you shall crush his heel, bruise his heel. In other words, there would be consequences for their sin. There was was judgment to come. There There were consequences, but there was hope. And that hope would come in the form of a child born to a woman, what we call the seed of the woman. And that child would not come through uninjured. He would have his heel crushed. His battle with the serpent would come at a cost. And that means that his mother would have to let go. To to give up her child for the salvation of the people. 
God didn't just introduce hope into a broken reality, but he gave the context in which that hope would unfold. There would be a world at war. There would be two groups, and there would be antagonism, enmity between them. And that enmity and that antagonism would often center in on two women in conflict, often in conflict about children. We see this over and over. We see it with Sarah and Hagar. We see it with Rachel and Leah. And today we're going to see it with Hannah and Penina. But God could not have tied his, his promise of hope, his promise of rescue to something more dear, more tender than a mother's relationship to her child. The love a mother has for her child is more precious than almost anything else we know. Only a woman understands what it means to long to become a mother. Only a woman who has had that hope unanswered knows what it means to deal with an empty womb. And only a woman who has lost her child, whether born or unborn, knows the deepest anguish a soul can ever experience. And so far, in our Christmas series, I have focused on the seed of the woman. And today, I want to take a step back and look at the woman of the seed. The mother who is both blessed to bear that child, but who must also suffer the agony of letting him go. And of course, that most specifically refers to Mary. But it pulls many women in along the way, each anticipating Mary to come, and by doing that, sharing in her grief and in her pain. But we're not safe, because we too are pulled into that story. God calls us to live lives of sacrifice as we follow after the sacrificial one. And so none of us are safe as we jump in to God's word this morning. And as we look at it, what we're going to see is that Mary is the long-awaited woman of the seed who must let go of her son if he is to conquer the serpent and save his people. Mary is the long-awaited seed, a woman of the seed, who must let go of her son if he is to conquer the serpent and save his people. But to understand Mary's story, we want to take a step back and spend some time with Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And we're going to look at her context, uh, the context into which Samuel is born. And we'll, we'll see how Hannah understood the birth of her son. We'll see that through the prayer she prays. And then after that, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Mary takes Hannah's prayer onto her own lips and understands the birth of Jesus in the same way as Hannah understood the birth of Samuel. That's what our goal is this morning as we open up this passage. Um, The life of Samuel uh, is pretty well known. He was served as a priest in Israel. He served as prophet in Israel. And he served for many years as the de facto king in Israel. 
It's recorded uh, in uh, 1 Samuel. And to understand his birth and its significance, we, we need to understand the world into which he was born. Samuel's birth comes on the heels of the days of the judges, which our which, uh, the days of the judges are known by that constant refrain: "There was no king in Israel, and everyone did as was right in his own eyes." First Samuel opens up with a man named Elkanah going to the house of the Lord for an annual feast and to offer sacrifices. He had two wives, never a wise practice, and uh, they were named Hannah and Penina. Penina had sons and daughters, we're not told how many, just multiple, that her house was full. But Hannah, Elkanah's other wife, had no children, and it grieved her deeply. And Elkanah loved his wife Hannah in her barrenness especially. And he wanted to comfort her. And so he'd give her a double portion, something that was not lost on Penina. And though her stomach and her house were both full, she was not content. And she coveted the love that Hannah had. She envied the barren Hannah. And rather than showing kindness and and compassion on this woman in pain, Penina sought to increase Hannah's affliction. Some people are like that. In their misery, they feel a need to make those around them miserable as well. They can't be happy, no matter how blessed they are. And it was there on their visit to the house of the Lord that Hannah went before the Lord and and prayed and she made a vow to God. It was there that she prayed, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. That's a heartbreaking prayer. She's saying that that if the Lord would give her a son, she would not raise him, but she would offer him back to the Lord to be raised in his house. She's saying it would be enough for her just to carry him in her womb and nurse him for a year or so, and then she'd let him go. There is no woman in this room thinking, sure, I can do that. But the Lord heard her prayer, and she conceived, and she bore a son, And she named him Samuel, which means the Lord heard. And as soon as he was weaned, she took him up to the house of the Lord. And she offered sacrifices. And then she left her son to be raised in the Lord's house and to serve there. As she walked away, how she must have seen a connection between the sacrifices she just offered and the son she just left. 
That's Hannah's story. That's her context. But there's another context going on that Hannah doesn't really know about that we know of. Eli, the head priest at the time, was not doing a great job. His two sons served in the Lord's house, but the Lord tells us they were worthless. The Bible states clearly that they did not know the Lord. They were unbelievers serving in the Lord's house. They showed contempt for the Lord's altar. They, they robbed the Lord of his sacrifices, saving the best for themselves before that food had even been offered on the altar. But no one, they, they, they tried to challenge these men, but they couldn't because they were powerful. And in their power, they grew arrogant. Like Penina, they used their place of strength to afflict those they should have been helping. And so the Lord declared his judgment and he told Eli, your two sons will both die on the same day and you will know this is my judgment. The Lord also told Eli that he would raise up a better priest, one who honored the Lord. Eli's descendants who who once gorged on the bread of the poor would have to come and they would have to beg for bread. This is the world into which Samuel was born. He would be that priest who would truly seek the Lord and restore some sense of order and justice and propriety to to the Lord's house. And Samuel's mother seemed to understand this on some level because when we look at Hannah's prayer, it's not what we expect. When this child she prayed for is born, what we expect is a prayer of gratitude for the child, maybe a prayer for his protection as she leaves him in the Lord's house, maybe a request for his future service to be honoring to the Lord and a benefit, but that's not what we get. Hannah seems to interpret everything in terms of the Lord, his enemies, and salvation. She declares that he alone is holy and that he alone can save. She warns the arrogant that their time of power is coming to a close. And we don't know if she's thinking about Penina or Eli's sons or someone else, but she declares that that God will take the comfort and the food of the strong and he will give it to the weak. And to the hungry. He'll give the barren woman children. (laughs) He'll humble the proud. He'll exalt the humble. And then she ends her prayer by looking ahead to a day of hope. Confessing that God guards those who trust him. She acknowledges that the wicked will be broken and scattered. That's her prayer as she hands her son off to the temple. It's not the prayer that we expect a mother to pray as she delivers her child to the Lord's house, but Hannah seems to see much more going on than meets the eye. And in so doing, she embodies the belief that the Lord himself is her reward. And so she rejects the the glory that this world continually seeks because she wants something deeper, something more. In In fact, in this prayer, we really see that her deepest longing is communion with her God 
and for his will to be done. For her, life is, is interpreted in terms of some cosmic battle. And somehow she sees her son at the center of that battle. He'll be the one the Lord uses to rescue the afflicted and to judge the wicked. He'll be the one to set things right. But for that to happen, she is going to have to let go. Samuel will indeed do these things. Over the next several decades, he will be a great blessing to Israel. But that blessing comes at a great cost to a very dear woman. Because there's no seed without the woman. Fast forward a few thousand years. And we have almost the identical prayer, but with a very different woman. Again, the story begins with a young man and a young woman. This woman is not barren, but she has no children. And the reason is simple. She's a virgin. And as God did with Hannah, he blesses this woman with a son. The son, God tells her, is the hope of his people. He is the eternal king. Everything that Samuel represented, everything that he embodied, is, is picked up on by the angel who announces this coming child. And Mary seems to get it. Mary sees herself and her son in the pattern of Hannah and her son. And we know this because when Mary prays, her prayer is almost identical to Hannah's. She hits all the same themes. She says God is, is holy and that he alone can save. Mary announces that God will take the comfort and the food from the strong and that he will give it to the weak. She, she announces that God gives the barren woman children, that he brings the proud low and he exalts the humble, and that he will guard all who put their trust in him, and that the wicked shall be broken and scattered. Mary's prayer is shorter than Hannah's, but it is Hannah's prayer. It's not the prayer you expect from a mother who just found out that she would give birth to the Savior of the world unless you know your scriptures. Because Mary seems to see much more going on than meets the eye. She interprets everything going on around her in terms of some cosmic battle and she sees her son as the one the Lord will use to rescue the afflicted and to judge the world. For Mary, there's no second wife, full and fruitful. For Mary, her enemy is simply the serpent. Because her child won't be the picture of the one to come. For Mary, her child is the one. He'll be the one to bring the greatest blessing ever. He'll bring eternal life. Mary's son will be the one to crush the serpent's head. But for that to happen, 
she's going to have to let go. That, that great blessing of, of caring and nursing the Savior comes at a cost to a dear woman. God had said that the seed would, would not be able to crush the serpent without first being injured himself. And so Jesus would have to die on the cross because there would be no salvation without it. That's the only way. There's no blessing without the seed and there's no seed without the woman. And so Mary would not have to bring her son to the Lord's house and offer sacrifices. She would have to sit at the foot of the cross and watch as her son became the sacrifice. And it was painful, beyond words, beyond any of us could imagine. But she did it. And as she did, she made it clear that the Lord himself is her reward. Mary knew none of the comforts or the glory that this world has to offer. She was content with something more, something deeper. To know her God and his salvation was her deepest longing. And she serves as a model for us. Not that we are called to offer up our children, but we are all called to live sacrificially in the face of the serpent's antagonism. Because while his fate is said, he continues to antagonize us. He'll intimidate, he'll afflict, he'll offer ease or comfort or glory. He'll do anything to try to get us to take our eyes off the Lord. And so we need to learn to pray as Hannah and as Mary did, confessing that the Lord alone is holy and that he alone can save. That he comforts the weak, the barren, and the lowly. And that he guards all who put their trust in him. And that he feeds those who hunger for him with abundance of heavenly bread. We have this call to live lives of sacrifice visibly demonstrated for us in two ways this morning. The first is in the baptism of Ali, Buma. As Johnny and Devin bring Ali to be baptized... They are confessing, as Hannah and Mary did, that our children belong first and foremost to the Lord. They are confessing that their deepest desire is to have the Lord as their reward and as the reward of their children. Their greatest longing is for Allie uh, to reject the glory that this world offers, to reject the lies of the serpent and that she would one day claim Christ as her own. So I'd like to ask Johnny and Devin uh, to come forward. Uh, Bo and Lila are, of course, welcome as well. I'd like to ask the elders uh, to come forward as well. You've been here before. You know the questions I'm about to ask, but it's important to ask them for each child uh, because our calling with all of our children is the same. 
We cannot be their salvation, and we cannot believe for them. But what we can do is faithfully raise them in the Lord's family and in the Lord's truth. And so two things are happening here. One is we're acknowledging that Allie is a part of the church. She's not foreign to this body. She's a part of this body. She's part of God's family. But we're also acknowledging that your greatest responsibility as parents is to instruct her in the truth. To gently, humbly, uncaringly remind her of her sin and what it deserves, but not in despair, but with hope. That as the Lord did with Adam and Eve so many years ago, he announced there's good news. There is hope. There is one who rescues us. Your greatest responsibility and privilege with Allie is to tell her where her hope is found in Jesus Christ. And we pray that one day we will hear her profess her faith here. And so this morning, uh, I have two questions for you, John and Devin. Uh, Did I say two questions? I think I have uh, four questions for you. Uh, Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are subject to condemnation, that they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace, and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? Yes. And do you promise to teach diligently to Allie the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? Yes. And do you promise to pray regularly with and for Allie and to set an example of piety and godliness before her? Yes. And then finally, do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Allie up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, encouraging her to appropriate for herself the blessings and to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. Yes. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you have told us that children are a gift, and indeed they are. A rich and wonderful gift, but with every gift comes responsibility. To he who much is given, much is required. And so we pray that you would both bless Allie that she would never remember a day that she did not love you, that she would cling to you in faith, that she would despise her sin and humbly ask for forgiveness. And we pray for John and Devin. We pray that you would give them grace and patience, wisdom and understanding, that they would know when to speak and when to remain silent, and that they would set before Allie a wonderful example of looking for their hope in Jesus Christ and not the riches and the glory of this world. And that they would learn to pray, as Mary and Hannah did, that they would long to see your will done and their joy would be in seeing it done. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. I said that there are two ways what we have heard in our passage is made visible. The first is in baptism. And I want to remind all of our children that you were one day up here 
And that message is true for you as well. That the Lord knows our sin. That's not the surprise. Uh, The surprise is that the Lord offers to forgive our sin. And he calls us to put our trust in him. And he promises us in our baptism. Our baptism is a promise from God that if you place your trust in him, you will not be disappointed. That when the last day comes, you will be with him in heaven. And when God makes a promise, he can't change his mind. And that's great news. The second reminder of God's grace this morning comes in the Lord's Supper. God calls us to his table to remind us that he cares for the hungry, for the afflicted, for the hurting. And so though we might be poor and despised by the world's standards, our God loves us and cares for us. He feeds us and he is our reward. He promises us that he will set all things right. That sometimes when the wicked are in power, we think the world is upside down, but God promises us that they will be scattered like dust and that he will guard the feet of those who put their trust in him, that they will not be disappointed. And when God makes a promise, he can't change his mind. And that's our comfort. That's our great comfort in life. And all of this is possible through the son whom Mary bore, raised, and let go of for our salvation. This table then belongs to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have acknowledged their sin, their need for forgiveness, and who have said, my only hope is in the God who watches over the hurting, the God who forgives the sinful, the God who cares for women like Hannah and Mary. And please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world. And we thank you for all the women who have sacrificed so much as you have worked toward our salvation. And we ask that you would teach us what it means to sacrifice, to let go of the treasures of this world in order to hold on to you. For you are our reward, our inheritance. You are our deepest longing. The sweetest thing we know is peace and communion with you. And so we ask that you would make us more like your son, to love what he loves and to serve as he served. Teach us the comfort of belonging to you, we pray. Amen.